0: Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The Gospel reads, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Hallelujah. I'd like us to pray, but I want to make a quick confession before we do. Personally, I feel a little distracted this morning, and I don't know if this is some type of spiritual attack or something that's going on. So I don't know if anybody else is feeling that way this morning, but this was hitting me as we were singing. And so given the nature of what we just read and what we're going to talk about in this text, about praying in the name of Christ and having troubled hearts, if you would, join me in prayer, and then we will dig into this text. So Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, we give you praise, and we give you honor and glory for what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds and out of our slumber and into the gathered worship of your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the worship that we have already experienced this morning. Lord, we thank you, Father, for the singing and the hearing of your scripture read, Lord, of confessing of sin. But, Lord, as we continue to worship you this morning, Lord, through hearing your word proclaimed, Lord, and coming to the table and making thanks for the work of Christ, Lord, we do pray, God, that you would Bind the enemy, Lord, bind his his confusing words and his his words of lies, Lord, that, that might be distracting our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord. We pray, Father, Lord, that through the Spirit of Christ, Lord, that you would pour out on us, Lord, to keep our hearts from being troubled this morning and distracted. Lord, help us, Father, to focus on you to your glory. Help us, Father, to focus on Christ and his work. and Lord, help us to focus on your word, what you have preserved for us through the pen of John and through the inspiration of your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray, God, as we come before you in your word, as we come before you at the table, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would honor our worship, Lord, that it would be to your glory in your name. And, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for letting me do that. Um, so, in the spirit of that, then, our, our text for today, which... I think really is fitting like our text from last week in John 10 about Christ being the good shepherd and being the door. Our text this week has been defined as a comforting text, and I think it absolutely is. But I would like to add two more words to that definition. And those words are, it's a transitional text, and I'll explain this as we go. But it's also a text about trustworthiness. So these words from the Lord here in John 14 are meant to bring comfort to us as his people. They're meant to bring us rest and assurance of our hope in him as our Lord and our Savior. But this text also serves as a reminder that Christ is trustworthy. Jesus is absolutely trustworthy because he is the way to the Father. And he shows us the Father. He's trustworthy because his works are done under the authority of the Father. Jesus is trustworthy because he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father and empowering our works in his name and by his Spirit. Jesus is trustworthy and his trustworthiness is a comfort to us who have faith in him. But this text also serves as a transitional text because Jesus now begins here in this passage of preparing us for his departure, of preparing his disciples for his departure. And we can see this even more so through the remainder of John 14. But Jesus is preparing the church for the transition from his earthly ministry now to the ministry of his spirit. And so within this text, what we begin, we begin to see, since we follow the calendar, we now begin to see the transition starting to move from Eastertide to Pentecost to ordinary time. And so as we come to this first verse here in this passage, Jesus tells us with that in mind, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. So beginning here in John 14 and then moving through his high priestly prayer of John 17, this has always been considered Jesus's what's called his farewell discourse or uh, his farewell message to his disciples before his passion. And this entire exchange takes place during the during the events of the Last Supper. And so if you were to back up, you don't have to. I'll, I'll give you a, an overview of chapter 13. By 14, verse 1, by this, by this phrase of let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus at this point has washed his disciples' feet. He has told them that one of their number was going to betray him, and then Judas Iscariot gets up and he leaves. He then gives them a new commandment immediately after to love one another, by which we will, that the world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. And then immediately after that, Peter, at the end of chapter 13, proclaims to Jesus that he would die for Jesus. To which Jesus, definitely in a spirit of love, says, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows three times. And that's a lot of information to take in over a couple of hours over dinner. right? So of course their hearts at this point are troubled. right? But really and frankly, we're no different. right? It's been 2,000 years... Jesus has departed, and he has been gone for a very long time. I don't know about you guys, but 2,000 years is a long time to me, because I know I will live maybe 80 or 90 years. 2,000 years is a long time. But he tells us here in verse 1, he says, don't be troubled by this. But let's be honest, that sometimes is more easier said than done. There's a reason we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And even though here Jesus is speaking comfort into our anxious and troubled hearts, This first sentence of this passage is meant to be taken as a command, not as a suggestion. Jesus commands us to have confidence in a foundation that is more worthy than our fears. And that is a foundation of a belief in God. He tells us, he says, disciples, my followers, my my people are to trust God and they are to trust me. And so the antidote to our fear and to our anxiety and to our doubt is an active trust in a God who has proven time and time again that he is a trustworthy God. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. Right. Notice, notice the exact wording that Jesus uses in that second sentence there. He says, believe in God, believe in me. He's not assuming that his disciples believe in God. He knows they believe in God, right? So he's not assuming their belief in God and then hoping to add on top of that belief in himself. Because the idea that belief in God and belief in Jesus is something that can be separated is completely foreign to the Bible. That is not something that the Bible would ever claim to proclaim. So here what Jesus is doing is he's quieting their troubled hearts and our troubled hearts by commanding us to believe in the God who has now been made fully known in the person of Jesus. And so through this one statement of verse one, Jesus now gives us really the framework to which the rest of this conversation in our text this morning is outlined. Because what Jesus does through the rest of this passage is displays that the comfort and the trust that we can find in him is the same comfort and trust that we are to have in God. And so notice what he says then in the next two verses. He says this. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. So notice what he's doing then now. He's saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. So he's now keeping the focus of our troubled hearts and our troubled minds on how trustworthy he truly is. He says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going in order to prepare a room for you. And this room is in the house of my father so that when, not if, but when I return, I will take you to be with me. All throughout John's gospel, God's house is referred to as both the earthly temple as well as a heavenly one. The earthly temple was the central focal point of Jewish religious life. But But as we know as we look over the course of all of scripture, it is merely a faint copy of the better heavenly reality. And Jesus assures us that there is more than enough room in the Father's house, in his heavenly temple, because there are many rooms in the Father's house. But even more so, just keeping with the theme of the Gospel of John, we understand that this has taken on an even more understandable reality in the incarnation of the Son. Because the Word has now become flesh, and he has tabernacled among us making the focus of this text not simply on a place that we can just kind of think about, but more so the focus of this text now is placed on a person, and that is the person of Jesus. And we can understand this really well by his use of this word rooms, or some of your translations in here might read the phrase mansions instead of rooms. In the Greek, the word that Jesus uses here and that John records is similar to the words for remain, or abide, or dwell. It's not the same word, but it's very similar to that word. So what Jesus is telling us here then is that in he says, in my Father's house are many dwellings, where that you will remain with me and abide with me. Just one chapter over in verse 4, he says this, abide in me and I will abide in you. And then Jesus asks them this rhetorical question. He says, if this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Well, of course he wouldn't tell us these things if they were true, because Jesus is trustworthy. All right, Jesus is not merely going to prepare a place, but in his going is the preparation. Again, he says this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This term going is in reference to really the final earthly mission of the Son. This is the going to the cross, the going to the tomb, but also his bodily resurrection from the grave. And then, as we will celebrate in a couple of weeks, his ascension to the Father. All of this is the preparation and the provision for our dwelling with God in Christ Jesus. And so here, just in this one verse, we can see now the first inklings of, of this transition of this text moving us from Eastertide to Pentecost to ordinary time. And so Jesus tells us in this verse, he says, his purposeful departure, or his departure, excuse me, is purposeful, but it's also intended to provide a departure for us as well. So this is not a cause. His, his departure is not a cause for troubled hearts. It's not a cause to be anxious or fearful. Instead, he has gone to prepare a place And the simple fact that he is gone guarantees that he will return. And so here I'm going to make a really, really cheesy preacher statement. And I can hear my own eyes rolling when I make it, but I've got to say it anyway, right? Because it informs the next three verses. Jesus is going away to create a way, right? You can all groan, right? Groan Loudly groan with me. It's cheesy, but... Listen to what he says. He goes away to create a way. And he says this in verse 4. He says, and you know the way to where I am going. So to reinforce our trust in God and to reinforce our trust in him, Jesus proclaims that we and his disciples, they already know, because he has told them multiple times at this point, they already know the where and they also know the way to which he is going. But these things are the same. The where is the way. And the way is the way of the cross. And just in case this confuses us, thankfully we have good old Thomas to help us out here, right? Thomas is so helpful in the Gospel of John because Thomas is us at the end of the day. Thomas is such a great representation of who we are, right? Because he is just as confused as we are, right? So he gets to bail us out here. And so, much like the theophany that we saw in the doubting Thomas narrative of John 20. Thomas, again, stands out here as the realist of the group, right? He wants to know some tangible answers. Give me some real answers, Jesus, right? And so we have to thank the Lord for Thomas, because in his question, Thomas does what we are all prone to do. He's a little doubtful, quote-unquote, but also he does something wrong here in this verse that Jesus then corrects. In verse 5, what Thomas does is he divorces the where, the destination, with the way, with the route. Here's what he says. Thomas says to him, Jesus had already just said, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Right. Thomas, like every one of us, getting ready to go anywhere, right, he wants step-by-step directions. Do this, and then do that, and then do this other thing. Right? It makes it so easy when it's all spelled out for us. This is why we all like the GPSs on our phones. right? So how can Thomas then, and, this, and his question is legitimate, right? He's, he's trying to figure this out. How can he know where he is going if he doesn't have the right directions? And so Thomas's question then provides this opportunity for Jesus to make probably one of the most well-known statements of his entire earthly ministry. Because Jesus, what he does is he defines exactly the where and the way. And he says in verse 6, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, by declaring himself not just the way, but also the truth and the life, Jesus clearly declares a threefold expression of both his person and his work. Jesus is the way, in that he is the only mode by which our existence and our participation in God are made possible and made accessible. But he is also the truth because he is the reality through which our existence and our participation in God are confirmed and they find their full meaning. Jesus is also the life, meaning he is the source through which our existence and participation in God are founded and given their origin. So the way to the Father is the way of the cross. And the way we reach the Father is forever established in the person and the work of the Son. Because only in Christ can we come to know the Father. Because only Christ is the way of all truth and all life to be found. And so then in verses 7-11, through Jesus then proclaims, he says, look, my trustworthiness and your comfort in me being trustworthy is founded in my person and in my work. And he does so here in these next few verses by really invoking and and bringing into our minds this mystery of the workings of the Godhead. And he tells us here, he says that he speaks and works only on the Father's authority. And so beginning in verse 7, Jesus tells us, he says that our knowledge of the Father is directly connected to our, our relationship with Jesus. He says this, he says, If you had known me, then you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So what Jesus is doing here on the heels of this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and Thomas is just asking for clarification. Jesus is not simply giving them a a very gentle rebuke, like he was doing a few weeks ago. He's not just rebuking them about what they should have known about the Father, but rather what he's doing is he is exhorting them, he's challenging them, he's, he's declaring to them, that they need to respond to what they now know of the Father in the person and work of the Son. Everything, he tells them, must now be different from now on. Because the revelation of God has been dramatically declared by the Word made flesh. Fascinating to me is the fact that in this passage, this word known here, if you had known me, you would have known my Father, and now you do know him. This is the exact same word. This has the same root word that we saw in Luke 24 of the Emmaus Theophany. Where Jesus was made known to the disciples in the breaking of the bread. This is also the same root word that John uses in chapter 10. When Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and he knows his own and his own know him. This means there is an intimate knowledge of who Christ is and who the father is. Telling us that to know Christ is to know the Father. But then notice in verse 8, Philip asks another question that we really have to be thankful for here. But also in Jesus' answer, we see here in these next few verses that the knowledge of the Father is not only related to Jesus' person, but also to the work that Jesus does. And so Philip asks this question. He says, Lord, or he makes this statement. He says, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And then you you almost kind of feel Jesus, like, not being frustrated, but just a little bothered. (laughs) Because he says, have I been with you this long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus He's correcting Philip's misunderstanding. He's he's doing so by describing that there is a unity between the person of the Father and the person of the Son. And again, there's a a little bit of a disappointment at this point, right? Because Philip is not satisfied with what he has seen of Jesus at this point. Lord, show us the Father, that is enough for us. And you can see in Jesus' response, I have been with you this long and you still don't know me. There's a bit of a disappointment, right? But frankly, are we really any different? Because like Philip, we are always asking for more than what God has declared sufficient. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God. And he is the visible manifestation of God. And that should be completely enough for us. Paul tells us as much in Colossians 1. He says, in Christ, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That should be enough for us. And so Jesus declares to Philip that those who do not find God's revelation of himself in Jesus, if they do not find God's revelation of himself in Jesus sufficient for their trust and for their faith and for their salvation, then they will never be satisfied by God's revelation of himself in any other manner. Our response to Christ determines our relationship with God. And so if we reject Christ, then we will never find God. But if we accept Christ, then he makes us children of God. And so Jesus tells Philip that he has been with him more than long enough to understand this. And so he goes on and he asks Philip another question in the next verse. He says this, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. This is a profound mystery of the Godhead that we have tried to get our minds around. And when we think we do, we still don't. Right? And so Jesus, but Jesus can speak this way, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him because he is the Word made flesh. And as the Word of God, John has already told us that he was with God in the beginning and is himself God. And so Jesus and the Father share One divine essence and one divine nature. They are both God while at the same time they are distinct persons. We confess this weekly in the creed. We're going to confess this in a moment. But notice how this speaks to how Jesus is trustworthy. And really how what this statement tells us can really be a comfort to troubled hearts and distracted minds. The language that Jesus uses here tells us of a mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. Both the words of Christ and his actions reflect the abiding, the dwelling, the residing presence of the Father. So everything that Jesus has said and has done is itself an expression not only about the Father, but from the Father himself. And as a result of this relationship, Jesus explains that the Father is doing His work within the words that Jesus speaks. So to state it again, to know Christ is to know the Father. And so if you are struggling to know God and to trust God, then know Jesus and trust in Jesus. Because as Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe By the word of his power. And so, in verse 11, what Jesus does then is he concludes this immediate response to Philip's statement with yet another command, just like in verse 1. And he just says this, Believe me. Believe me. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. So here he is demanding that we all who would claim to follow him would submit to this truth. But notice that this belief is not only focused on the person of Jesus, but also on his words and on his work. Both the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus reveal who he is and who the Father is. The works themselves clarify that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. Meaning, that true and full faith in Jesus requires not suggestive, it requires that our belief in everything about him, not just the parts that we like or we don't like. We must believe everything that Jesus has said and done about himself and his works. And this is frankly if not one of the the absolute major issue with any theological liberalism at work in the world. These that proclaim they believe and love Jesus' message of care for the poor and hungry, which is a good message, but then they reject his person, and they reject his sacrificial work on the cross. They reject his bodily resurrection, and they reject his message of repentance. True faith in Christ is found not only in the person of the Son, but also in the message of the Son, and in the work of the Son, because it all speaks to the character of God the Father. And it all gives glory to the Father. Which Jesus goes on to tell us in the last three verses. Because here in verses 12 to 14, he tells us that his trustworthiness is also found in his response to our prayers, as well as his empowerment of the works that we do, all for the glory of the Father. Let's Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, truly, truly. So again, this is one of those statements that says, look, I'm about to tell you something that is Divinely true. So don't miss this point. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is basically a New Testament version of thus saith the Lord. He says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So just as Jesus corrected Philip's misunderstanding by explaining There's a unity between the Father and the Son. So now Jesus declares that there is also a connection between the work of the Father and the Son and the work of his people, the work of the church, the work of each individual believer. And he tells us that the works that he does, we will also do. And this is a very confusing verse, right? This, this has been misunderstood. I mean, if you go look at any commentary spanning the last 2,000 years, everyone has a different opinion on what Jesus means here. Not, not saying there isn't some consistency, because there absolutely is. But really, it's, it's the simplicity of Jesus' statement that's the key here to understanding this. Because he just says very plainly and simply, he says, If we believe in him, then we will do greater works than him, because he has gone back to the Father. That's it, right? No more complicated than that. But then, if you're like me, you go, okay, that's fine, that's simple, but what does that mean, right? How do I understand that? What am I supposed to do with that in my everyday life, driving around Jackson, Tennessee, and everything else, right? Because let's be honest, that makes us a little more than uncomfortable, right? Are you telling me that I am greater than Jesus? No. (laughs) But how can we do better works or greater works than Christ? He tells us. In this one verse alone, and and we'll explain even more as we look at these last two, but he says that our works are completely dependent upon him. Because he says, if you believe in me, then you will also do the works that I do. It's dependent upon belief in him for who he is, who he has declared himself to be, and how he has shown us the Father. And it's also dependent upon a reliance upon him to work through us to do these greater works. And so in this way, what Jesus is telling us very clearly is that the Christian life, life in the faith, life in him, life in the church, is not a passive life. It's not one where we can sit back and recline and wait to die. It is an active life, and it is intentionally active. We are not merely witnesses to God's kingdom. More so, through belief and faith in Jesus and through the indwelling of his Spirit, We are not merely witnesses, but we share in the ministry of God as full participants in the work for His kingdom. And while our works will not, absolutely will not, redeem a lost person, the proclamation of Christ and the conviction of His Spirit will. So go do the work. But this statement really informs how we understand how our greater works actually work. right? Because no Orthodox Christian would proclaim that we are greater than Jesus. Jesus tells us in chapter 13 of John, he says, no servant is greater than his master. So whatever is greater about the works of the believer or the works of the church is not in spite of Jesus, but because of Jesus. Because it is only in Jesus and through Jesus that our greater works find their power and their foundation. And so there's not a conflict here between the works of the church and the works of Christ, Rather, the church participates in the work of the risen and glorified Jesus through his Holy Spirit that now dwells within us. Here again, the text is transitional. It's moving us toward Pentecost in ordinary time. And so he concludes then with this guarantee of our works in these last two verses. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So similar to us having to rely upon him to do these greater works, us asking in his name cannot be disassociated from Jesus. Jesus will do whatever his disciples ask as long as they ask in his name. By asking in the name of Jesus, we are placing ourselves completely under the authority of God. But to pray in Jesus' name is not simply tacking it on at the end of a prayer. Rather, to pray in his name means to pray according to his will. In the way that, as if Jesus were literally sitting here with us right now, we are praying according to his will as if he would work like he is with us. And the purpose here is not to get God to do our bidding, but for us to learn how to pray rightly according to the will of God. And just as the Father has given authority to the Son, so we do our greater works not by our own authority, but completely under the authority of Christ. And Jesus tells us here in verse 14, He says, Our prayers, which are asked rightly in His name, are already accomplished in the providential will of God. He says, If you ask me anything in my name, then I will do it. And so, as we begin this transition right? as we start to move from tide, and we still have a couple of weeks left but as we move from Eastertide into Pentecost and into quote ordinary time even though Christ has ascended to the Father remind, remind yourself of this command do not let your hearts be troubled but let them be comforted because Christ is trustworthy he will return to bring himself to us but also to abide with us and to bring us to himself. But in the meantime, he has not left us alone. He is in his spirit. He has poured out his spirit to indwell each and every one of us who believe in him and have faith in him, who believe in and have faith in his atoning death, and who believe and have faith in his victorious resurrection from the dead. So pray and ask rightly in his name and ask in his character, ask in his will, And not only will Jesus do it, but he has already done it so that the Father will be glorified in the work of the Son. Amen.